Welcome to our second hour, Discovering God, and our series, Identity Crisis, which is on the screen and on the front cover of the notes that you should have. Well, let me remind you of some things that are coming up, and then we'll get into, into those notes. This evening is our uh, first and third Sunday of the month community groups, those meet in homes. So if you want to be a part of a community group, and I would encourage you to consider that, uh, then let us know. You can let us know at the information desk, welcome center before you leave, or you can uh, send the keyword CBC Connect, text that to 97,000, CBC Connect to 97,000, and then uh, we will respond to your, your request about that. So that would be community groups. Those are, are going on tonight. And then uh, two weeks from, no, one week from Friday is the Ladies' Christmas Social, the annual Ladies' Christmas Social. That's just a, a week from Friday, so it's coming up very quick. And as Pastor Larry said in their announcements during the first hour, the spots for that are going very quickly. So ladies, if you haven't registered and registered those guests that you're inviting, then do that right away so that you have a, a spot for that. You might have saw it flash up on the screen just now as well that... Uh, the day after that, so Saturday the 4th, that's Friday the 3rd, the ladies' Christmas social. But then the next morning, we're having a men's breakfast here. So guys, just be aware of that on Saturday the 4th. We have a men's breakfast and a guest speaker uh, for that. This coming Wednesday, uh, I'm all out of order in what I'm saying, so the guys are trying to keep up and, and get it right. But uh, this coming Wednesday, we don't have our midweek program because of, because of Thanksgiving, but we'll resume those classes the, the following week. All right, we are continuing our series, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say I Really Am? I want to start by looking at Galatians chapter 5, and if you have your Bible, you can look at it. If not, I, you can just follow along as I read. Galatians 5 and verse 16, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Now, I'm reading from the older NIV on that, and it says sin nature. I think the newer one uh, says a flesh. So do not give into the desires, live by the desires of the flesh. Uh, the old version translated that sin nature. I personally like sin nature better. Uh, because people read flesh and they think your body, the desires of your body, and that's not what is meant. There's actually a different word in the Greek word in the New Testament, soma, for your physical body. But this word is sarks, and it is referring to your fallen, your fallen nature. So in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, it's saying you have the spirit, but you also as a Christian still struggle with the fallen nature as well, or sometimes called the flesh. And it says, do not uh, gratify the desires, that word you see there uh, in verse 16 and 17, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the sinful nature. If you have a King James, it doesn't say desires, it says the lusts. So when you see the word lust, that has the connotation of of sexual desire most of the time, and, uh, and, and, and so it's for an object most of the time when we talk about lust, so that's unfortunate. 
But this idea of, of desires can be misunderstood as well. The Greek word is epithumia, and it, it literally means this, over-desires or inordinate desires. Over-desires or inordinate desires. Don't gratify these over-desires. It's an, in, it's an intense desire, an over-desire and an inordinate desire. But here's the, here's the key thing I want us to understand is that those desires for whatever or whomever can be for good things. That's the part we often miss. When we think of sinful desire, we think of the object itself as being something forbidden. It may, it may well be that. It often is that. But for Christian people, a la what I said last week, if you were with us, and if you weren't, I would encourage you to watch the the recording. But I said that for us, you know, in the first year or two of the Christian life, we remove a lot of the obvious stuff. So we get rid of a lot of that. And then it becomes the smaller stuff. And by smaller, I don't mean less important. I just mean harder to see, less obvious. So you got rid of a lot of the obvious stuff, the things that were obviously wrong for you to desire. And so you got rid of a bunch of that. But These desires can be not for a forbidden object, necessarily. They can be that, but they can also be for a good person or thing. You can over-desire a good thing. You can over-desire, have an inordinate desire for something that in itself is perfectly fine. In fact, idolatry setting up idols in your heart, idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. You want a good thing, but you over-desire it. You want it too much. Now, how do you know if you want a desire too much? You know you want it too much when you're willing to sin to get it. So, you want, and our lesson is going to talk about spouses, but you could apply this to any relationship. But you want this to have a solid relationship. And let's say it's in your marriage. I want to have this solid relationship. No one would say that's a bad thing. God would approve of that desire for you to have a good relationship, for you to have a husband or a wife who's following him, who loves you, and together you are partners in discipleship, in your relationship. So that's a desire for a good thing, but what if your spouse is not cooperating? (laughs) That's where the I want it too much then comes out. Because depending on how I react, it's going to reveal what, what place this desire has taken in my heart. So I may get angry. I sin in response to not having it by getting angry. I may manipulate. I sin in response to trying to get this good thing that, that I want. Or think of it other than relationships. Just other things that are good things that you might desire that are fine unless they become over desires. You want them too much. You come home from work, you want peace and quiet. You're just bushed, man. You 
you worked 10 hours, you had to deal with the traffic to get home, and you're looking forward to just being able to collapse into your easy chair, and you can see it, you can see the easy chair. (laughs) And so when you get home and you pull into the driveway, there's a bike in the middle, and you've told the kids a thousand times to put the bike in the garage. And so now I got to get out, I got to move the bike, I drag it into the driveway. So I'm kind of, you know, okay, and I'm looking for this, and I go into the house, and I'm already now a little steamed about that, but I go inside the house, and the house is kind of a wreck too. You know, and we sacrificed for my wife to stay at home and to be a homemaker, but, you know, it looks like she's not making much of a home here. From what I can tell, it's a mess. There's toys strewn on the floor, and when I go to where my favorite easy chair is, there's that junk on my chair, too. You know, and the kids are screaming and all of that. So you're hungry, you're tired, you just want some peace and quiet. Now, is wanting peace and quiet a good thing? But it's not okay to sin to get it. It's not okay to snap at your children. It's not okay to snap at your wife. It's not okay to have attitude for the rest of, rest of the night. So it can be for something just like I want some peace and quiet or I want my, my spouse something larger, like I want my spouse to cooperate in general in our relationship and become a godly person so that we can become godly people together. It can, become, it can be anything. Literally any person or thing can become an object of idolatry when it becomes an over-desire, and you know it's become an over-desire when you're willing to sin to get it. I want peace and quiet. I want uh, an obedient child. I want my child to obey. Is that a good desire? Yeah. But if you're willing to haul off in anger and smack your child across the face because you're so sick of them disobeying you, or their smart mouth, that's become an over-desire for you. It's controlling you. Or your desire may not be for an obedient child, it may be for a child. I want, I want I'm a young couple, I want to have a child. And for whatever reason, God has not given us a child. And you then can sin in response to not having that because it's a good desire that's become an over-desire. You become, now how could you sin with that? You become joyless in your Christian life because without this object, this good object, but without it, I can't be happy. I can't be contented. I have to have this. And so you become joyless. Well, guess what? When you become joyless, you're sinning because the Bible commands, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Philippians 4.4. I said, you know, this lesson is going to talk about spouse issues. Maybe your desire is just like with a child, obedient child. I just want a child. Cooperative spouse, I just want a spouse. So maybe the desire is I want a spouse. Is that a good desire? Yeah. If you want a godly spouse, that's a good desire. But if that desire goes unrequited by God, 
then we can sin in the absence of it. So I think you can begin to see how you can just have a literally limitless list of things that can capture your heart because you want them. And for most of us, those things are not forbidden things. They're often good things. But idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. And you know you want it too much when you sin in response to not having it. Top of page 28. This is going to talk about spouses, but apply it to any relationship and even broaden it to just any good thing that you may desire. An unchanging spouse, top of page 28, can complicate any marriage, especially when you want your spouse to change so badly that you use sin as a way to make it happen. The Bible has another way. It offers the gospel of hope, but it only comes through sacrifice. Here's a testimony from someone. He hurts, crushes, destroys my hope at every turn. I'm dying a slow soul death, drowning in hopelessness and negativity. I intensely, desperately want to escape this prison of pain, fear, insecurity, loneliness, and lack of intimacy that holds me captive. Simultaneously, I feel a sense of extreme pity and sorrow for this hollow shell of a man, and I realize I must extend to him the same kindness, love, mercy, and forgiveness that the Lord has shown me even when I am at my, have been at my worst. So that's somebody's situation, and that's not just an isolated thing. Believe me, I have met many a person in that situation. It may be a husband with a wife. It may be a wife with a husband. Many a person. And God may or may not grant repentance for the husband. So there's no guarantee that that's going to to happen. So how can the gospel soften this difficult situation? Middle of page 28, the gospel is shining brighter in the woman than in her spouse. God has opened her spiritual eyes and her grasp of the gospel and desire to follow Christ is greater than that of her husband in this case. Her in-Christ identity that we've been talking about for the last few weeks then can drift, though. Healthy wishes of love and marriage often elevate to idolatrous levels. And over time, these controlling desires co-mingle with the wife's identity. The health of her soul becomes dependent on the health of her marriage. You guys see that? The health of her soul becomes dependent on the health of her marriage. And when that happens now, she is captured not by control of the Holy Spirit, control of the Lord Jesus. She's now being controlled by her husband. Yes, God's design is for the husband to care for the wife's soul, but the headwaters of soul care is always Christ, not someone else. The husband is gospel immature and will turn to passive or aggressive self-reliant responses as he responds to the fallenness in his life. Now, the assumption here said earlier, I didn't read it, is that both of these are Christians. But the husband's obviously less mature. When passive, he shrinks back, shrinks back from his God-given responsibilities through withdrawal or blame shifting. He occupies his time with distracting activities, sports, career, video games. Other times, he takes the aggressive approach in an attempt to restore his internal peace by regaining control through anger and manipulation. Steps to isolate his wife come into play. He may use the trappings of legalism to gain control, using scripture passages like Ephesians 5.22 to 
evokes shame and fear. Ephesians 5.22 tells wives to submit to their husbands. <laughs> Some husbands become master manipulators. Let me stop there. Again, apply it to whatever relationship you've got going, where you've got, last week I talked a lot about the jerk in your life. So whoever that is, a boss, a family member, a spouse, friend, whatever, apply it to them. And they use these kinds of techniques to manipulate. Now, if you're in that situation, you need to understand, friends, you can only be manipulated if you allow it. You have to allow the manipulation. So if you recognize that someone is doing this, you need to stop allowing the manipulation. Now, the closest I've come to this personally is I had a family member years ago who manipulated pretty much everybody in our family and would call at all hours of the night looking for money in order to continue a habit. And that had gone through my mom, that was going through my other siblings, going through me. This had gone on for years and years. And I saw my dear mom when she would deal with this. And she would say, I can't, I don't have the money. And then she would get a barrage of negativity thrown at her. Manipulation. Telling her how horrible she is. This is my dear sweet mom that's being told how, how horrible she is. But the thing that was curious about it is my mom would listen to it. And you guys remember in the last couple of weeks I've talked about my mom finding her identity in raising us. And because her identity was subsumed in raising us, now this controlled her in a way that what my sibling is saying matters to her deeply. So she's listening to it as if it's credible. Now, it's incredible. It's not credible at all. And anyone who steps back and knows what's happening here can see that. But when you are so entwined in it and your identity is tied up in it, now you listen to it as of utmost importance to you. And my mom, I would see her listen to this. And then she'd be wounded by what was being said. And after she gets off the phone, I say, Mom, you know, none of this is true. You're the greatest. And she's crying. Because her identity is not in Jesus. And she's, not taught, she's never been taught to do that. She's been taught your life as a wife and a mother is completely in your husband and in your children. And if that gets messed up, your life is messed up. And so then when that's being criticized, even in a manipulative way, it means everything to her. So I saw that happen. When I got an adult, I became, got married. Then I started to get the phone calls, and I determined, you know, I, I'm not going to validate this. And Proverbs 26 and verse 4, Proverbs 26, 4, Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest you be like him. And I adopted that. I don't engage. You do that, we don't talk. 
You come at me with a verbal barrage, we're not talking. The conversation is over. I don't make conversation with fools, and I don't mean that to be unkind. I don't do it. A lot of times these conversations were in an inebriated state. Not me. <laughs> okay. Thought I needed to add that. And so just foolishness abounding. And so I'm not going to do this, often on the phone. And I would say, anything else? I'm going to hang up now. If there's nothing else, and then it was still the barrage, the barrage, hang up. I had to do that a number of times before the message is clear. He doesn't suffer fools. And you shouldn't either. The Bible tells you not to. But I understand why we do it, and I understand why my dear mom did it, because your identity is so tied up into this going well, and you love the individual, especially if you deeply love the individual involved. But there is no individual, now hear me carefully, there is no individual in the world, your spouse and including your children, that you're to love more than Jesus. And Jesus tells you how to handle this stuff. The word he gave you tells you how to handle these things. So don't answer a fool according to their foolishness. Don't engage. And when you make that clear, now they're going to have to change tactics. This is not going to be a tit for tat. We're not going to get into. I don't use the facility that God himself gave me and gave to every one of us as creatures made in his image, namely the ability to communicate. God gave us that ability, unique among his creatures. And it's a misuse of God's gift of communication to engage in this. So I'm not going to do it. And I didn't. You know, one last illustration of it. It's the... Um, the telemarketers have just about stopped, you know, because you can get on the do not call list, and most of us have probably gotten on that. And now you got caller ID, so you can see it's some 800 number. Or my cell phone will say potential spam. It turns out it was Dr. Combs trying to get a hold of me, but no. <laughs> but it'll say potential spam or something like that, and so you can ignore it. But back in the day, you didn't have any of that. Remember that? No caller ID. You're just picking up your landline blind, and you, had the, and you have the telemarketer, and the telemarketer immediately asked how you're doing, and until you get used to it, which took me an inordinately long period of time for some reason. Like, I would fall into it. The person would say, Mr. Brown, you know, how are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. I've engaged the person already. We're friends. I'm already one foot, you know, in their direction. And then they, you know, just want to make sure it's, it's me. Yeah, it's me. I'm, I'm Ken Brown. And then they start talking to me about whatever it is. And then, you know, I've realized I'm not interested in this thing. I'm not going to buy this thing. But I don't want to be impolite. You don't want to hang up. So I listen to the spiel. And then this thing could go on for 10 or 15 minutes. Am I the only person who was, back in the day, caught up in some of these things? But finally, I had to learn, you know what? I'm not going the first step. So when I answer the phone and I say hello... And then there's that silence, you know, that little three-second silence. 
because you have to say hello again for them to catch it at the call center. Oh, I've got a live one here. It takes two hellos for that. And so if I don't hear anything back, click. If I do end up talking with them, I have to say as politely as I can, I'm not interested. And that's what I'm saying here. You don't engage a fool according to their foolishness, and you have to have the willingness and the, and the desire to obey the Lord such that you're willing to do that hard thing. So bottom of page 28, both the wife and the husband have a history of poor soul care that predates the marriage. There are additional negative consequences of not being raised by godly fathers. The wife's father coupled with past opposite-sex relationships did not minister to her soul, which often elevates her desires for male love and affection to idolatrous levels. Man, have I seen that a lot. I just say, girls, young ladies, you are, you are of infinite value to God. So you don't have to give yourself to anybody. You don't have to find your value in anybody outside of Jesus. And the sooner you get that, the better off you'll be. Because if you see your friends getting married and having a spouse and you say, I want, I want that, and some dude comes along and nobody else has come along and none of these other so-called godly guys at church can get off their duff and you know, make a commitment, so then you might go for somebody outside of that. But Jesus has got you. Guys, same thing. Jesus has got you. You don't settle. We don't settle. God sends us godly people. And if we have a godly person that's committed to Jesus, then thank God for it. Form a partnership together to disciple each other and serve him. And if he has other things for you, he's got you. Top of page 29. The husband's father did not provide a good model of soul care to his wife, leaving the son to learn the world's teaching. He may know how to provide for her physically, but not spiritually. But the gospel can improve the situation. But there must be a proper understanding of how change occurs. There is the potential unchangeability of our Adamic natures. The Holy Spirit can transform hearts, but we're all works in progress and fleshly temptations linger. Our sanctification is slow. So again, that's just repeating. You've got this problem person in your life. You want them to change. That's a good and godly desire. You don't want it to morph into an idolatrous desire so that you're willing to sin to get it, and you need to understand that it may not happen, that the person may not change. But God has his good purposes even in that. So whether the person changes or not, God will change you if you cooperate with God. And so that is why the next paragraph is true. The goal must not be to change the husband's behaviors. It must be personal growth in worship and service, which leads to a restful soul. The wife seeks to develop two game plans. She needs to institute a plan to nurture her soul internally and then look to help her husband. External soul care. Now notice in that order. You deal with you. You deal with your heart. You get yourself and your identity in the right place. And then you're in a position to try to help your spouse. 
And then whether the spouse changes or not, because you're in that good position, you'll be good. But it's got to start there. If you start with, I've got to change them, now all the while you're becoming more and more frustrated and you're also moving backwards in your Christian walk because you haven't dealt with your own internal soul care. So you need an internal game plan for yourself first, then try to help your spouse. You see the chart there again. We specialize in charts you can't read. But you've got the suffering spouse and seeking to apply the gospel to the situation. And you're cooperating with, with God. You're in, in, and you're engaging in your own soul care and growing deeper in your relationship with God. Below that, we say, she, and then all the stuff to the right results from that. So the wife must expand her thinking to include God. She also needs to gain a gospel view of suffering and an understanding of her heart to know how the nemeses of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness are in play in her responses to this challenging situation. First line there, she must expand her thinking to include God. Now remember, she's a Christian. And remember, she's the more spiritually mature of the two Christians. And yet, that line has to be said. She must expand her thinking to include God. You know how many of us in this room, I, I, I don't have the ability to identify perfectly. I could just tell you a lot. Just from observation experience in my own heart. How many of us can come to church on Sunday on the Lord's Day? We can sing great songs. We can hear God's word. We can talk to other Christians and engage. And this afternoon, we can forget God in all of that. This afternoon. Let alone tomorrow and by Wednesday. <laughs> and you get to work and you're in, the, you're in the pressure cooker of all that's going on in your life. And you forget it. And you forget God and you forget the fact that, wait a minute, God, I, I go to a church that teaches that God is on the throne in everything and that God has good for his people all the time, even in bad situations. And I said amen to that a bunch of times just Sunday. <laughs> but now I got this thing going on and I've chucked all of that. I forgot all of that. So she's got to be reminded, she's got to expand her thinking to include God. Now, I just want to ask you a question. What do you do if that's the case with us as forgetful hearers, and it is? That's why James chapter 1 had to address it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only and being forget, right? And so that applies to you and it applies to me as well. This afternoon, I could forget in a moment, in an intense moment, I could forget the stuff I preached earlier. And I spent most, much of the week preparing for it, then preaching it, and then I can forget it. So what helps with that? What helps with your forgetfulness? Well, friends, it's the means of grace, which means you open the book and you're reminded. That's one of the means of grace, God's Word. Open it, be reminded. But another huge one is to have other people, godly people, who remind you. 
Every one of you needs a person or persons in your life that you're talking to regularly that are praying for you and encouraging you and you're doing the same for them. You were never called to live the Christian life by yourself. If you try to live it by yourself, you're dead. You can't do it. You forget too much stuff. You need people to remind you. So she has to expand her thinking to include God. She also needs to gain a gospel view of suffering, to understand and an understanding of her heart, to know how the nemeses of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness are in play in her responses to this. Many times a wife will take a soft approach by placing the burden of change on herself, believing the shortcomings, her shortcomings as a godly wife are to blame for her husband's actions. Her indwelling shame can lead over her to oversubmit and not confront evil, leaving the husband caught in sin. You guys ever seen that? I've seen it. And it's using the wife as the example here, and it's wives who usually do this. As the softer of the two, generally. I've seen wives that are not so soft, not mine, but generally. And so you take... She takes this soft approach. It's my fault, and so she takes it. Certainly, she wants to look at what her issues are, but if she simply gives in to his sinful, idolatrous desires, then she's not helping him. She's not helping herself either. Other times, bottom of page 29, a wife can fall into a legalist, self-righteous mindset and begin to judge her husband's behaviors, she becomes the moral police. With the lack of change in the husband, the wife will become frustrated and head down the path of cynicism and bitterness. Roots of unbelief can grow, leaving her vulnerable to fleshly temptations. The common error in both of those approaches, that soft approach or that moral police approach, top of page 30, the common error in both of those is the wife's belief that her happiness or her soul health is dependent on the actions or love from her husband. Her happiness or her soul health are tied to him. So as long as your happiness or your soul health is tied to somebody else, then you're set up for idolatry. And you're set up for a fall because that person has fallen. If the husband is unable to serve as a godly leader, the wife must repent of her idolatry and find other sources of Christ's grace. This change in her mind is the key to her survival. Experiencing the full life with Jesus, says Marshall Segal, we say with David, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. We can be infinitely and enduringly more happy with Jesus than with anything or even everything in a world without him. Now, you read that, you can be infinitely and enduringly more happy with Jesus than with anything or even everything in a world without him. You read that, do you believe that? Ask yourself, do I believe that? There are three areas of focus then for her soul care, this internal soul care. She has to embrace her new identity as a daughter of God. The thoughts of being unlovable, unworthy, and all of that have to be replaced with her true identity, her in-Christ identity. So, any of you that struggle with that, I've got a list 
of 34 things that the Bible says you are in Christ. And I give this to people, and I say there's 34 of those, and so you've got at least one for every day. I want you to take one of those every day, and I want you to think about it all day. Think about all day the fact that God says you are the light of the world. Think about all day the fact that God has said you are my child. Think all day about the fact that God says you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Yikes. I mean, you just go down this list and you think about that. You meditate upon that. If a person will do that, then they can begin to get their true identity in place. Once she begins to understand all she has in Christ, she can learn how to be content in all circumstances. The health of her soul improves as she begins to detach from her physical environment. So you're not going to leave the world. You can't leave your job. You can't leave your house. I mean, you can, but you're not supposed to. And if you're going to glorify God and you're going to grow in the way He wants, then obey Him in it. He wants you to stay. If your spouse, even the jerk spouse, wants you to remain, 1 Corinthians 7, then you remain, unless they're abusing you. If they're abusing you, then you have to move to safety. But outside of that, you stay. And Christ remains, remains with you. But you're detaching yourself from your physical environment. You're in it, but it's not what's controlling you. It's what you have in, in Christ. Secondly, through daily meditation on the gospel, she must learn how to put on a repentant mindset. To walk in the Spirit, she must enter through the gate of spiritual bankruptcy. Poor in spirit leads to mourning, which leads to meekness, that is humility, which leads to a thirst for righteousness. And now her heart will start to have a change in desires. The focus is no longer on herself, but on living out this new identity in Christ. And she'll extend mercy, seek purity, and extend peace in her relationships, including with her husband. As she grows in understanding her heart, her ability to discern godly sorrow from worldly sorrow is going to increase, allowing her to seek God's wisdom. She'll know when to let love overlook sin or when to speak into her husband's life to confront evil. Third, she must consider how God is using this season to refine her taste for Christ. Her flesh can train her taste to be satisfied with the junk food of the world. She can place her hope in marriage, in sex, in health, in wealth, in looks, and other things that can't hold water, says Jer the prophet Jeremiah. So read that one over again. She needs to consider how God is using this to refine her taste for Christ. See, one of the things God does in putting you, me, us, in trials, difficulties, and trials are not just diagnoses like with a disease or something like that or a loss of a job. It is all of that. Trials are sometimes relationships. But one of the reasons God puts you in trials of whatever type is to show you how empty all of that is. God is seeking to cause you to go to the end of yourself and the end of those things that you're putting your trust and your hope in so that you're left with only being able to trust Him. That's what's meant by number three there. This is refining her taste for Christ. Because you can train your taste to be satisfied with the junk food of the world. You can be satisfied by too little. And God says, I have infinitely everything that you need, and I'm going to make you dependent on that, on me. 
So she must lean into Christ through reading the Word, prayer, worship, fellowship, church, and service, means of grace that I mentioned earlier. Sometimes fellowship with the Lord will be sweet, other times dry, but she must continue to, to seek biblical paths. As Tim Keller has said, quality time with the Lord is obtained by quantity. As Christ's grace feeds her soul, she'll feel like she now has a rudder to maneuver through the storm. She's now in a position to help her husband. All right, so a couple comes, and they say, we got problems. And I told you a few weeks ago, they're going to say our problems are communication almost 90% of the time. Um, so we've got problems. We just don't communicate well. We need to know how to communicate when, in fact, there are many much deeper roots to, to this and heart roots for both of them. And so I meet the first time with the two of them, maybe a second time with the two of them. But you know what I do is I break them up. Not literally, but I, <laughs> but I, I, I want to meet with him. And I want my wife and I to meet with her. And the reason I want to do that is because you got to go through this exercise. Each person has got to see themselves. Each person has got to deal with themselves. They have to go through this internal thing before they can be a useful instrument in the life of the other person. So very often you get you know, two together and they haven't gone through this and you're just like a referee. You know, and then you know, they say something, oh, yeah, right, and then you know, sure, and then, and then there's all the you know, rolling of the eyes and there's all the... And it's just... And you're just trying to say, hey, will you shut up while that one talks? And, you know, and that's my job is to say, you shut up while that one talks. And we're, not getting, we're not getting anywhere. So seriously, that's why, that's why I do that. The internal care of each person is important in order to have the overall care for the couple. Now she's in a place to be constructive. Top of page 31, external soul care now for her spouse. To serve as a helper to her husband, she must view her husband through the gospel while looking to cooperate with God in what God is doing. And then there are some suggestions for what to do about that. So we will look at that next week, okay? So bring your notes back with you. We'll pick up on page 31 and finish our series probably next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the blessings of it like each. Thank you, Lord, that we could sing your praise. Thank you that we could look into your word. Thank you that we could show our complete dependence and trust in you by giving back to you what you've entrusted to us. And so even in that, Lord, we thank you for that blessing to demonstrate we trust you. And so we can turn it over. We can hand it over to you. And then, Lord, for this time, to be able to think about these principles that you teach in your word about how idolatry is formed in our hearts and that it's often for good things that we want too much and we're willing to sin in the absence of. Help us to see that, Lord, each of us. Help us to then think about who is the person who has become an over-desire for me? What is the thing that I want that's become an over-desire for me, an inordinate desire, an idolatrous now desire. Lord, if we could just identify the one or two things in our lives that are controlling us that way, we can then begin to work on those. So grant us, I ask, that insight in each of our lives. 
And then, Lord, help us to, to think about the wisdom that you have given us from your word about how to approach these things, that we need to dethrone that idolatrous desire and enthrone the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering that he who gave himself up for us all, how will he not also graciously then give us all things, your word says. And so, Lord, you're withholding no good thing from your people, ever, Everything that's happening in the lives of your people, you are working together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so help us to remember that and to, and to, to love that, to believe that, to live in light of that. This week, we ask you to help us to do that. Lord, this afternoon, help me not to forget you. Tomorrow, help us not to forget you. This entire week, Lord, may we have your word before us so that we remember you and have people in our sphere of influence to remind us of you and to point us to the Lord Jesus. Strengthen us as we go throughout this week in a fallen world and the different places to which you've called us. Grant us safety, we ask, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.